What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm Inc. Executive Editor Diana Ransom, and you are listening to Inc. Uncensored. Today's episode, Failure. Just about every founder has some story of failure, whether it's small moments of setback early in careers or gigantic collapses. It's hard, emotional, but sometimes necessary part of a founder's journey. So naturally, we wanted to explore failure on this show. So we reached out to a couple who founded an ice cream company and just before the pandemic filed for bankruptcy. My name is Jackie Kuskuna, and I am the co-founder of Ample Hills Creamery and The Social. My name is Brian Smith, and I am the other co-founder of Ample Hills Creamery and The Social. And And you're listening listening to to Inc. Uncensored. Ample Hills started in 2010 and built wild success until a series of missteps led them to sell the business, once valued at $40 million, for $1 million. This past May, however, Brian and Jackie were able to buy back Ample Hills. It was a second chance, and that's why we wanted to talk to them. Not only could they speak to failure, but they could speak to how things are going differently this time around. But when we reached out to them, we learned that they were losing their company again. My colleague, Inc. Editor-at-Large, Christine Hani Dare Bryan, and I spoke to Brian and Jackie just days after they were forced out of Ample Hills. We've lost it all. So everything will be in the past tense. I'm still wrapping my head around the fact that this just happened a week ago. What was supposed to be a conversation about failure and redemption became something completely different. The title of this show has never been more appropriate. We get deep into the weeds on what went wrong over the past few months. But I started by asking them how they lost the business the first time around. Oh, boy. Um, Overreach, chasing the stars, uh, flying too high, um, all of those uh, cliches. I mean, basically, uh, we built that beautiful, glorious uh, Taj Mahal of a factory in Red Hook, Brooklyn, that cost us uh, $6.7 million to build, and it was supposed to cost four. That's probably not, you know, in and of itself, the worst thing in the world. I mean, it's an over budget, but it was really the cost of operating that factory. So ultimately, we had all those relationships with Disney, as you mentioned, and Marvel, and uh, fans from Oprah to Spielberg, and that was driving our um, growth, and we had gotten to 16, 17 shops. And we felt like we needed this factory to continue to grow. The problem with the factory was that we estimated that we would need about 15 shops for the factory to be at what I'd call a break-even, that the overhead was adjusted to how much revenue was flowing through those stores. As it turns out, that number was probably closer to 25 to 30. Again, not a problem if you have a ton of money in the bank mm-hmm. or if you have investors that want to just keep funneling it into this unheralded growth, right? I mean, Starbucks built out giant warehouses to roast all their coffee before they could support that, but they had all the money in the world to be able to do that at the time and then grow into those warehouses. We didn't have the liberty of that time to have the number of shops catch up to the size of the factory. So we had overreached. The shops were doing well. But it didn't matter that the shops were doing well. It didn't matter that people still loved the ice cream, that the brand was still alive and well. We had built this thing that we couldn't get out from underneath us. And it just basically squished us. I mean, we, we, we couldn't cut our way out of the problem at that point in time. Obviously, that's sort of what led to the downfall, Brian. Thanks for sharing that. But um, the company had filed for bankruptcy protection. You had you were forced to sell the business for a million dollars to Schmidt Industries. And you were able to buy it back for about $150,000. And then what happened? So our investors that helped us open the social were able to buy back the IP for Ample Hills and three shops, three Ample Hills shops. 
not the factory, because we all recognized the fact that the factory was the reason why we ultimately had to declare bankruptcy the first time. So can I step back and ask you, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is you were wildly successful in the entertainment industry. You were successful in the industry that people would think is harder than anyone in the world to get through. And it sounds like you're wildly creative. You're in education. You're not serial entrepreneurs who crash and burn every few years and that you're, you've had these very established successful careers prior to that. Is it that you're just really good at creativity versus business. And I, I don't know if yeah. I would give myself the same criticism as well. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I think that what we did really well with Ample Hills, the social and the, the things that we did before uh, was two things. One is storytelling. Ultimately, whether I was a screenwriter or I produced and directed radio dramas and audio books, books on tape, or made ice cream flavors that told stories, whether it was the Black Panther or Captain America or Star Wars. It's storytelling. And then what Jackie did, and she can talk about it, was uh, community, uh, and community through the four walls of the shop and and building that. And so between community and storytelling, um, you have this thing that connects people across space and time. And And using ice cream as that vehicle um, just allowed Ample Hills to become something that was so much more than an ice cream shop, a place to get a scoop of ice cream. Where our, our failings were, you know, originally were just riding that train up too far and too fast. Uh, where our failings were this second time around uh, was really just picking the wrong partners, it was picking the wrong investors that weren't aligned with where we were at creatively and visually. I mean, that was what was exciting to me about business was that, you know, you could create a business that actually made a real impact on neighborhoods, on communities, um, on, you know, families' lives. When we started Ample Hills, we had two little kids, two and four, and we wanted an ice cream shop, a local ice cream shop, you know, to pass the time with our kids someplace where parents could hang out and your kids could play in the back and the play kitchen. And everybody wants that third place, I think, especially in New York City, where your apartments um, get claustrophobic and you want to get out. So it was for me and for us, you know, collectively about the initial desire and the and what we opened first. Yeah, it's um, sort of solving a problem, right? A lot of entrepreneurs end up starting out businesses because they see a problem for themselves in their own life and they want to solve it. That's right. So for you, it was like you needed a you know a community place, um, a place for people to convene, kids to have ice cream, and but then it got complicated, right? You know, you obviously you you had the push card. You started with the push card and Prospect Park, and and then what happened? What made you think you needed to grow it and how did it expand? We couldn't make ice cream physically in the one shop. It was a 150 square foot kitchen. Oh, wow. Um, so so uh, Brian was the only one at first making the ice cream. Uh, then we saw that we actually needed more people to help make the ice cream. But then we realized very quickly that we needed a larger space to make the ice cream. So originally when we expanded, it was just really because of the demand yeah. and the inability the to the, the lines were just it. so long that we thought we need to open up another place, get a bigger space to make ice cream because mm-hmm. we can't serve all these people with what we're doing now. Yeah, but that makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, you're just, that's yeah. growth. That's natural Yes, growth. exactly. Yep. And the growth was very organic and very natural for the first three or four years. What happened was, I mean, the, the, the singular moment in time when that changed was when we got an email from Bob Iger, um, who had ordered the ice cream online and offered to help uh, and said, you know, maybe we could open an Ample Hills at Disney. And, you know, I grew up in South Florida. I went to Disney all the time. That was an impossible thing to say no to. Um, I, You know, he became a mentor, um, visited the shops. Um, we would go out and visit him. And he really helped us more than just the introductions, obviously, to whether it was Lucasfilm or Marvel or Star Wars, or Oprah for that matter, it was helping us codify what it was that we had done well. Meaning when you open an ice cream shop and you're 40 years old at the time and Jackie was a school teacher and I'd been a screenwriter, you don't have the whole vision and the mission planned out. You don't have all the the elements. Uh, We weren't 
building a chain. We were just opening a neighborhood ice cream shop. But we did a number of things right, but we had never written those things down on paper or codified what they were into a core set of, uh, of values or mission. And Bob really helped us uh, walk through how to do that. And when we did that, and then when we uh, started a relationship with Disney, that introduced the idea that if we were going to do that, it meant growing quicker. Uh, it meant needing to not do it, as you say, organically with the profits from one shop feeding the next shop. It meant going out and raising money, which, of course, we found to be very easy because we had this relationship with Disney and uh, these things happening. And all the shops were, were successful yes. and profitable at that point. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't just Bob. We were already on like Food Network yeah. and uh, Today Show. and there, So there had been these things that had happened that had just sort of catapulted the, the, the notoriety of what we were doing. At the time, we were the only one in Brooklyn making ice cream on location. There was there were a lot of firsts that we were yeah, doing. Yeah, I mean, we, we had created an ice cream churning bicycle, the first of its kind that we were, you know, utilizing for birthday parties. So it was just one of the many little details, but that set us apart and also kind of connected us to the neighborhoods and the communities that we were in. Mm -hmm. But once you do take that money in, once you take that venture capital money in and you start to, to grow, the expectations just become different. The idea of what you're going to do. We didn't change what our, our values were. We didn't change what we were doing and accomplishing. It just changes the speed at which you're doing it, which, of course, in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fail. Lots of businesses are successful and sort of growing quickly. Yeah, but uh, that pressure does sort of eat away at other things, exactly. I'm sure. What was one thing that you could point to after dealing with investors that you thought was putting too much pressure on you or that was leading you to make perhaps bad decisions because of it? From my point of view, I was the CEO uh, and, and Jackie and I, you know, did everything together, but ultimately I, I still, I was the CEO. I, I would say that the pressure honestly came more internally. We had a wonderfully supportive, too supportive um, board of <laughs> investors that gosh, too supportive well, of a board. Does they that were very supportive. I, they were I, I guess what I mean is when important questions should have been raised, uh, they weren't necessarily raised because the people, you know, I had, I had had to that point a Midas touch on everything that we had done. I mean, you know, I'm, it's just the facts on the ground as you look at them at the early growth and the relationship with Bob and the things that we were doing, and the ice cream we were making. And so it was like a lot of yes, a lot of yes people, mm -hmm. and, and which was wonderful at the time. In retrospect, having people that had more experience in that space, these were venture capital people mostly, not people with food experience or brick and mortar experience or growing a brick and mortar business or a food business. And so having those people around saying, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do that or maybe that's uh, that shop shouldn't be all the way on the West Coast or maybe we shouldn't make rectangular pint containers. Yes, the rectangular pints. That's squints. probably one of the biggest ones. But anyway, it's, it's, just, it's just that idea that we weren't being pushed and questioned. Building on what you said about investors and your investors not always being in the food space, how much of this and the problems you face for people not understanding the challenges of being in food? Anthony Bourdain once said to me, there's nothing like working in food because it's a perishable product and that introduces all these other variables. So how much has that affected the outcome of your business and the challenges of your business? I always liked ice cream because it didn't uh, go bad. Like, you know, our children yeah. were always like, we wish you had a cupcake business or we wish you had a cookie business. But those things go bad after a couple of days or a day. Ice cream, at least, you know, as long as the freezers don't break down. And yes, that's terrifying. And yeah. it's better than gelato, the gelato yes, business, right? That's right. It's got more <laughs> fat in it so it can survive longer in the freezer. You know, meltdowns in the freezers, those were always stressful. But in general, I wouldn't say that was a, um, a significant part of it. It's just food in general and scaling a food business and the manufacturing of it is very different when we opened the first shop, how we made ice cream, to how we made ice cream in the factory in Red Hook 10 years later, to the point that I didn't actually know how to make the ice cream in the factory in Red Hook. I mean, I didn't personally know how to operate the machinery uh -huh. because it was industrial uh, what's called continuous freezers, you know. So because of that, I ended up naturally through the growth 
pulling myself out of the kitchen and running the company without having my hands in making the ice cream. And I think that was certainly also part of the problem that we, you know, got away from, you know, my core superpower, if you will, of like generating product and ideas for products. I also think it's also just dealing with the food business generally, you know, it's common to fail in food. What I also think is interesting is that the investors, the choice of investors that you all brought on, um, you said it was easy to get money from them, but at the same time, they were, they're sort of like tech people, right? Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily understand the food business and the food business is really rough. I mean, you talk to the David Changs of the world. I mean, he's, Mm. he's had a multiple, multiple failures Mm -hmm. and it happens. So if you could talk about a little bit about, you know, the investors that you've worked with and, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. You know, as Brian said, they were very supportive. I think they were really looking at growth, you know, from a kind of rocket ship uh, perspective, as opposed to maybe looking at this factory that we had built and how that was going to make sense. From our perspective, the factory made sense because it was going to be in Brooklyn. It was going to be part of our story. It was going to be a place where we could go to that, you know, almost like the Ben and Jerry's factory. Um, One of the conversations we had was actually with Jerry, who said that creating this factory, this space where people could actually, you know, see where things were being made was a really important piece of the brand. And so for us... museum elements. Also, it made sense that it was in Brooklyn, right? Because you have Ample Hills as a reference to Brooklyn. Exactly. Yeah. One of our board members, one of our investors was one of the founders of Brooklyn. Was Brooklyn it? Brewery. Brooklyn Brewery, yep. right. And they had originally not made their beer in Brooklyn, right? And then they later on made their beer in Brooklyn. I can't remember, but it's just, we, we yeah. talked a lot about that. Yeah, we did. We did. And he, he completely, you know, agreed with us on that. Yeah. So And we could have made the ice cream in Brooklyn. We could have made a factory in Brooklyn. Much smaller. Just, just and, the smaller, yeah. yes, less of the... It, see, this is the thing about starting a company and, yeah. and failing. It's like you mm-hmm. learn from yeah. these experiences. Yeah. Yes. What good would you say has come from kind of going through this? Mm. So much smarter. I'm really tired of learning things. <laughs> I would like to not learn anymore. No, um, we did, and and in fact, as we started over again with the social, yeah. I mean, which was our our new ice cream shop that we birthed out of the pandemic. You know, I mean, one of the exciting things for me was to get back in the kitchen to learn that. You know, 10 years from now, if we had been able to grow the social into like 10 or 15 shops, obviously I wouldn't be making every scoop of ice cream, but I had swore to myself I was never going to completely leave that thing, which is what gave birth to why people liked it, why people cared about it. The quality of the product is, you know, one of the few things that separates it from some other uh, brand. You know, there's the community aspect, the brand, the storytelling, and the quality of the ice cream. And so with the social and the learnings from having gotten so far away from that uh, and the way that we made the ice cream. You know, I spent the pandemic making ice cream on a little hand-cranked ice cream maker. You know, if everybody was making bread and sourdough, <laughs> I was I was churning. <laughs> well, you also made... I, did, uh, I made some donuts mm. that we ended up using. But yeah. I, I really loved doing that and getting back into the making of the, uh, of the ice cream and looking at how could I improve upon what we had done before at Ample Hills. And so... I think that was one of the learnings. And then was to, to go slower. Yeah, go slower. And then I think what was exciting to us about opening the social um, was the fact that we could apply some of the learnings that we took from the bankruptcy um, and, and losing Ample Hills um, to the social. That was the other part of that. And obviously it was a very different experience because it was one shop as opposed to a massive factory and, you know, 16, you know, shops. But it was about how are you going to make sure the four walls of this shop are profitable and, you know, doing well. And now in the beginning, when we first opened Ample Hills and on Vanderbilt Avenue, it was profitable. It was kind of a runaway success. 
we didn't quite have that at the social in the beginning because the, the pandemic just wouldn't leave us. It was like we had Delta and then Omicron. <laughs> so, you know, we had this now this new challenge that we had to get through, which was how do we just take this one shop and, and make it successful? And it was an uphill battle in that uh, during that time period from 21. Right. And one of the things you did differently this time around was hire a CEO. No, we, no. we didn't actually hire a CEO. Um, that, that came only after we took back Ample Hills. So the way it happened was, you know, somebody else took over Ample Hills, Schmidt Industries. They ran it for two years and then they closed all their shops down in December of 2022 and then liquidated by May of this, this year, 2023. And that's when we were able to, along with our investors, buy it back. In that intermediate time, we had opened the social, just a singular shop. Uh, and so Jackie and I ran that. Our investors were basically silent investors. You know, we, we, had, we controlled what was happening on, inside those four walls. After that sort of slow burn of the beginning through Delta and Omicron, by January of this year, we were at 70% improvement year over year. January, February, March, April, May, all five months, 70% uh, improvement year over year. So we were on pace to have gone from an $800,000 a year to like $1.4 million this year. And that's when Ample Hills came available to buy back because the uh, other company had gone out of business and was now liquidating the intellectual property. So our investors said, hey, what do you guys think about buying it back? And, you know, we'll have this bigger company and we'll keep the social, but we'll also add three or four Ample Hills shops. And we're like, that's great. Let's do that. Again, it wasn't our, our money. We had gone through a personal bankruptcy. We still didn't ourselves have the actual resources. We had the intellectual property. We had the ability, the experience, mm-hmm. uh, and the passion. When that was bought back, the investors that we have, that the same ones that had started the social with us, said, we're going to do this, but we want to put in a CEO, one of our own. Like one of the three investors would be the CEO. We were not opposed. I mean, five years ago, I would have been, how, you know, kicking and screaming, <laughs> like, this is my thing. I, you know, nobody takes, mm-hmm. you know, but through the learnings. Right, was right. That, you've been, okay, you've been humbled. People, yeah, exactly. One, <laughs> right. you're humbled. And two, you, you realize what it is you do well mm-hmm. and what somebody else might be able to do better. Right. Meaning like just sort of, if you had a CEO that uh, had experience and could run the financial guardrails of the company, allow for the creativity and the culture that Jackie and I did as the founders, then you could have a happy medium between the three of us. Unfortunately, that is completely and utterly not what transpired over the following five months, but that was the idea and that was the goal. Are you opposed to working with the CEO in the future or someone who's a CEO? Yeah. Oh, good Lord, no. No, I not mean, at all. We, we would love, I mean, again, it would be great. Uh, and wherever we go next, it will probably not necessarily be our own entrepreneurial thing at this point. You know, we'll probably look for, you know, work somewhere else, you know, working for some CEO. I mean, I would imagine as a next step. I, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Can we reframe this concept of failure? Because just thinking about it, you know, written about a lot of food companies that have done things wrong, but you've created a product that's brought people joy. I know ice cream has gotten me through the last few years. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, when you look at your work and that you brought a product that people enjoy at a time, a very dark time in our society, what do you view as your successes? And then do you even view these things as failures or what would you consider failures? Like what's your perspective on this? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I see what we created as pretty special too and magical and beautiful and, you know, connective. And I think part of our desire to start again with the social after losing Ample Hills was the fact that like everybody at that time was leaving New York City and we didn't want to do that. We wanted to create more of a space here. We know we do that well, that I know, and I think a lot of people know that Brian's ability to make incredible ice cream is pretty incredible. But the community aspect of what we did was such a success. It resonated with the community so incredibly because up until, and we'll get to this in a few minutes, but up until the, or actually on the day that we were 
fired from the companies, two people came up to us in separate neighborhoods just saying, yay, Ample Hills. And we were like, wow. Uh, Yeah, we got that a lot because, you know, this for-profit business means a lot to people. And I think that people, that sense, uh, we have no regrets about because our personal failure in the sense of uh, losing those jobs and losing those companies and losing the financial stake in them and not having any money, those all sound like terrible failures and they are and they're things that we have to live with on a personal basis in terms of paying rent and uh, bills and sending our daughter to college. But the the thing that we made, it has impacted countless people's uh, lives. That's something that we take with us forever. I mean, and it, it's that beauty and community. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the part that that hurts the most, honestly, is letting all those people down. You know, uh, to see the excitement and genuine, just genuine excitement, I guess, is, is there's no other word for it. When we were able to get Ample Hills back, that excitement that people were showing us in the street and in the shops when we would go there felt great. And... <laughs> To kind of not have that and know that we don't have that anymore is just a hard, hard pill to swallow, I have to say. But you can be proud of what you've done. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it's true. We did create some great spaces and ice cream and places and and more importantly, moments for people that, you know, will stay with them for the rest of their lives. So... So many people would come up to me and, and say, oh, my God, you know, I, I had your ice cream at our wedding. Um, you guys did a wedding cake for us. or And then, you know, we celebrated our baby's first birthday on your rooftop in Gowanus or all these various celebrations and moments that are just important. And I, I know that I experienced them growing up in special places with my family. So it's I'm glad that we had the opportunity to do it. Right. Take us back a little bit. So after Ample Hills ran into financial trouble with the factory, the business was still kind of started to hemorrhage financially. And then what happened? I guess it was um, June or July of 2019 when our CFO, our finance director, came to us and said, guys, we don't have enough money to make it through the winter. Uh, And that was the first sign that our projections for operating the factory, which at that point had been online for all of seven months. I mean, so this was, it was very short push towards the end uh, and said that we didn't have enough money. So we went into uh, um, six months of trying to raise more money. I mean, we first started going back to the original investors. They were tapped out. Right, so, you'd, you'd raised about 20 million. Yeah, total, 19 right? million 19. over the course of a two series and some notes, convertible notes. Mm-hmm. And so then we were trying to do a down round where, we, you know, everybody would get wiped out and we would um, still be able to keep the business and afloat. And, and, and we had many potential suitors. It was a period of months of people doing diligence and like living in our space with us, going over the numbers while we stopped making payments on leases. And we, you know, we started to like contract as much as we could to protect the money as much as possible. And and many of those groups also found that the factory was really the problem. I mean, it wasn't just one. It was like multiple groups who had done their due diligence I mean, with us. everybody looked at it and realized yeah. the same thing. It, yes. was, it was the factory that, that needed Meaning to go. that the brand was alive and well, successful, that the, that the path forward was to get rid of the factory, either have a different space where you made the ice cream that was cheaper or to co-pack the ice cream and have somebody else make it under your guidance. But all of those things sort of collapsed uh, or they didn't necessarily collapse, but we just started running out of time. And so... By February, we realized that we did not have enough. And of course, it's winter, so there's not much money coming into the business. We didn't have enough money to get through. And you have to, it costs a tremendous amount of money to file a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. I think it was like $750,000 just to go through the legal process. So bankruptcy is not something you do if you have no money. You have to, So we had to save enough money well, to be able 11. to do it. Yes, Chapter 11. If you liquidate, that's different. So it, well, we don't need to get into the weeds. Of that, but Chapter <laughs> 11 is about trying to reorganize the business. So our intention 
when we went to file chapter 11 was that this would be a big story. Everybody at that point, there's nobody out there in the world that thought anything else other than Ample Hills was still a runaway freight train and was incredible and exciting. And so we knew that if we filed chapter 11, there'd be lots of suitors, lots of people, and we could find somebody that would be able to come in and restructure the business. Jack and I'd still be there. We'd get a little piece of equity, lose a lot of our equity, but the business would go on and we would rid the company of the considerable debt that it had through the bankruptcy, and all that would work. The problem is that we filed for bankruptcy on March 15th of 2020, and on March 16th, the city shut down (laughs) due to the pandemic. So the pandemic had nothing to do with the collapse of Ample Hills or the bankruptcy, but it had everything to do with the failure of Ample Hills to come out of Chapter 11 with the right partner. So when we started... There were many people around the table, celebrity chefs. There were, I mean, we, uh, you know, just a lot of different people that were really aligned, other ice cream companies. The business was at one point valued at 40 million. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that you could get this company for at the time people were thinking it would sell for three to $4 million out of the bankruptcy, $5 million. Again, we didn't personally get a penny out of that because it went to the debtors as it would. But as the pandemic started to rage was when people had to start putting in bids. And so they basically all dropped out until at the end of the day, there was one single entity that was interested in making a bid. And that was this company out of Portland, Oregon called Schmidt Industries. And they were a machine parts company. To this day, I still don't really understand what it is that their CEO saw in the thing, but they clearly saw it as a commodity, um, a product that could uh, take them to the promised land. I, I don't know, but they made the tremendous mistake of keeping the factory, of wow. deciding to pour more money into it. And they also, you know, told us on the very first phone call with us that they believed that we were expendable. You know, you as executives, yeah, you, yeah. Jackie and I as founders were expendable, and. And um, I understand the the concept of what he was trying to say, which is that no individual, you know, shouldn't be expendable. But the thing is, Ben and Jerry, uh, you know, I would argue today are expendable from Ben and Jerry's, right? The company is well-established and they're figureheads. They don't make the ice cream. They, they are ambassadors. They're incredibly important in that regard. But if they left, uh, they wouldn't destroy the company. And had they left before they made the sale to Unilever, whenever that was 20 years ago, I don't think the last 20 years would have been the same, right? So you ha- it's at what point in the company's growth or, or development are the founders no longer uh, expendable? That's always the goal is to get to a place where the founders can move on and the company can thrive because otherwise, what, what is the point? I mean, of, of building the business that is only reliant on that individual or two individuals. Right. So after Schmidt told you you were expendable yeah. or the we, CEO? We, uh, we moved on. Oh. We, we were not going to be there. Uh, and so that it, we couldn't work out a deal with them. Well, they ultimately just didn't want us. I yeah, mean, no, it was, they didn't. We had tried at one point and then, you know, uh, they just... They didn't want us, yeah. And so we ended up not having jobs there. So we never worked for them. Once the deal was solidified and they bought it, and they then um, started uh, pouring in um, money into it and restarted uh, the shops. And they restarted 10 or 11 of the shops in the factory. They were a publicly traded company. So we were able to see their quarterly reports and I could see uh, the hemorrhaging of the money and whatnot. And eventually... They ended up getting called up on charges because they were misreporting figures to NASDAQ. They got delisted from NASDAQ. They, they ended up hemorrhaging all their money and shutting down on December 19th, just uh, less than two years after they had taken the company. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And meanwhile, you had taken the time to start the social. That's right. Yes, exactly. We spent the pandemic dreaming up what we wanted to do next. 
we had the luxury of no, the luxury, but we had the time. <laughs> no, the, the luxury. It wasn't a luxury. <laughs> it wasn't because we, we had to move. Yes. We were, but you know, the broke. pandemic, well, you know, there was the double unemployment. There was yeah. the assistance to people that had lost their jobs with yeah. the pandemic and stuff. So we had some time to build up an idea for what's next. And so that was when we hatched the idea for the social. And that, as Jackie was saying, came out of the idea that people were social distancing and we wanted to reclaim the word social as a way to have ice cream bring people together. And then also as the ice cream social, which was historically created for to raise money for a cause. And so every month we would have an ice cream social and we connect with a nonprofit and we'd churn ice cream on this big, huge, larger than life ice cream churner and do that outside and... It was, it was great, a great space and a great comeback. What often happens in sort of startup culture is uh, failure gets deified somehow. A startup that has failed uh, or a founder who has failed kind of can go on to the next thing. You've learned from the experience. It's a badge of honor. Some investors won't even blink at you unless you have failed previously. <laughs> it hurts to go through it. Clearly, you're experiencing this now. But what we have found in our reporting is that it can actually help you in the long run. What helps you is industry experience. So instead of writing science fiction movies and teaching, <laughs> if you had come from the ice cream industry and then starting a company in the ice cream industry would have helped you. But also failing in the ice cream industry and then going back to ice cream and learning Learning from those mistakes can help you. So who knows what you're going to do next? Yeah. But the question is, like, maybe if there's a way to, with the gift of hindsight, look back at what you did and maybe there's a lesson that you learned or what might be the key thing that you took away from that experience that you would bring to the next thing? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, for me, it's uh, if you're looking at a business and you're building a business, it's to take things a little bit slower and make sure that the uh, unit economics are working and that the the sound business is working and is profitable before you scale. Mm-hmm. There's a sense a lot of times I think with startup culture is that we'll fix it later. Okay, we, you know, we, we've got a lot of people that like this thing. We're going to grow it. It's not profitable now, but we can fix that later. And sometimes you can, I guess, but uh, it's so much um, healthier and so much more of a sure thing if those things are sound and established um, beforehand. And I think that's uh, that's the primary thing that we did wrong the first time. Mm-hmm. What else did you dig your heels in on besides the square packaging that you maybe regret now? Um, I think that maybe it was building shops out of state early on. So uh, originally when we first sort of started, we had thought, of growth in concentric circles, you know, starting in Brooklyn and we could go to Manhattan, or maybe Westchester, Jersey, and you start to just sort of expand through the tri-state area. And that seems organic and made sense. But I think once the relationship with Disney started to happen and there was this opportunity to go to Orlando, then it seemed like, well, maybe we should be in Los Angeles because, well, it's 3,000 miles away. Doesn't that sound easy? Um, <laughs> no, but it, it was the other major media market. And since we were a media darling and we were like connected to the greatest entertainment company in the world, like we should be in Los Angeles. And then, well, we should be in Miami, you know, and then we were looking at Chicago. And so I think that those created such operational challenges to a young business and quality control issues that we just weren't setting ourselves up for success at that time. Is there anything fundamentally different between the food industry, between your first time around Sample Hills versus the second time that has changed that entrepreneurs should be aware of? I think retail obviously is is somewhat more difficult because of the pandemic. But, and I say there's a big but there, people are now, you know, the, the pandemic is waning and people are still looking for places to gather and be together, whether they're wearing masks and, you know, <laughs> they're outside. Snow gear, or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just, to a certain extent, you do have to mitigate some of those losses that have occurred from the pandemic. And, and that is, like, creating those cool to-go packages or whatever it is that's 
a little bit pandemic-y in terms of like how you're going to create this experience in a box that you can give to people who might be nervous about gathering as well as the, the gathering aspect of it. How about social media? I mean, when you guys were getting started, it was 2010. I mean, yeah. social media has blossomed pretty considerably since oh, then. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, that, that makes a huge difference. And the connections that you make through social media, which didn't exist when we first opened, I think all that we had was a, our Facebook page. And now, of course, you know. Yeah, we really built, I think, the business based on like traditional media, you know, uh, the TV spots from like Food Network programs or the morning shows writing about, or, you mm-hmm. know, airing us or the, uh, the newspapers. And now brands can start up in just that social media space. With food, I, I think it's, it's really interesting because the greatest challenge with like a food business that's only in the CPG space or not, that doesn't have brick and mortar is that it's so much harder to create via just the social media angle that kind of brand connection, the kind of passion that people feel. When people walked into an Ample Hills, we'd already sold them a scoop of ice cream. They, they Once they walked in the doors, they're like our customer and they belong there and they're connected to it, right? But walking down a supermarket aisle with 20 different kinds of ice cream pints in that pint freezer... If you don't have the brick and mortar space for your CPG brand, it's so much harder to break through to get that emotional connection. And so Ben and Jerry's, you know, uh, historically and famously, like, I mean, they have scoop shops, but they represent, uh, you know, single digits of their overall revenue of of that company. But the scoop shops provide this incredibly important role of being marketing centers, of being a brand ambassador centers, places that generate that community and the passion for people. Is it harder also with the kind of fickleness of social media influencers versus yeah. getting a spot on the Today Show 10 years ago? or Yeah, chasing fads or chasing mm-hmm. clickbait Memes or things like stuff. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know we had an investor once uh, tell us that like, you know, you should just go create the next cronut, you know? And, you know, for, <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, but the cronut was created. What is the next cronut? I mean, like, I, I don't know. <laughs> With ice cream on top. It's just, yeah, yeah it's just that, that, that notion of chasing something to be seen, I don't think is the way that you get success. You have to drive from a centered part of mm. passion for the thing. And then people come to you uh, as opposed to chasing Particularly with food, we had this when we talked to the founder of Gold Belly. I mean, you will pay for a product that has this reaction, reminds you of your childhood. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's things and tastes I remember of like foods that have gone out of business, bakeries that have gone out of business from my childhood, but I can taste them on my tongue right. decades later. No, it's true. I mean, it's just, um, it's like Ratatouille, if you've seen the the Disney film where, you know, that, that scene where he tastes it. And it just kind of brings him to his, you know, childhood. And it's just such a beautiful moment. And, and, and it's that connection that people have over food, over space, over sharing. You can see the passion that you both have toward this mm-hmm. and toward ice cream. Just looking at your faces as you're talking now, it's, it's pretty dynamic. Um, you're going you're gonna to keep going. <laughs> I can already see that. So you mentioned mentors earlier, Bob Iger being one, Jerry from Ben & Jerry's. Have you talked to them lately? Any tips, advice? I haven't. I, I, I need to. I've been hesitant to call, but I, I mean, I, I should. I should uh, reach out to, to Bob. Yeah. I mean, he's been. Uh, he continued to be a supporter once we'd moved on to the social, ordering ice cream for you know Christmas presents. And uh, but I haven't recently. I think we're still in the reeling phase, and as we sort of get grounded, I think we'll start to figure out what the, the the next step is and sort of reach out to, to people. Yeah. I do wonder what they would, how they would view a failure. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, yeah. cause Jerry, for sure. I mean, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's different cause right. Bob is not himself an entrepreneur. Bob Iger didn't form or create Disney. So it's a different kind of role or thinking than say Jerry. And ultimately Ben and Jerry failed in, in one sense, because they did not want to sell their company when they sold their company. They obviously did okay and continue to be ambassadors for the brand and, and whatnot. But at the time, it was an epic failure for them. They, they were sort of forced into a selling of the company that they didn't want to sell. Building on what you said about learning and almost being tired of learning, I mean, does it feel like a failure or does it just feel like a really hard learning experience? 
I think it feels like a really hard learning experience, actually. Yeah. I mean, I it's just another learning experience. It's not even just that it's really, I mean, it is really hard. It's really hard, uh, one more really hard learning experience, right? It's just that, you know, every time you fail, um, you learn something new, you learn something different. The first time we failed, we learned some things, a, a bunch of things. The mere fact that we could fail because we hadn't yet failed, right? That's the first the first thing that you learn. Like, oh, okay, like I've experienced success. I haven't yet experienced this horrible situation. So there is that. But then you just take some things from that that you learn and apply to the next yeah. phase, which we did. I feel like, you know, the first time around, we failed because, you know, I failed. I mean, you say that, but... Well, you pointed that out to me. Well, I did. (laughs) (laughs) On a number of occasions. I I mean, I made the mistakes. I was the one responsible for making the mistakes, and I own that. I think that's okay. Those are the kind of... No, but because those are the kind of failures that we can learn from and experience. And, and like, I I can accept that and see that that's a good kind of failure, right? right? Growing too fast making those mistakes. I, I can see that. This second time around, this just feels totally different because it wasn't you and I that That's failed, right. right? I mean, yeah. we, we we failed to protect ourselves with contracts. But we failed and the, ourselves. We failed, ourselves. we failed to really trust the fact that there were a whole lot of things that we learned that we did a whole lot better and wouldn't make those mistakes again. And we didn't yeah. make those mistakes. So right. I Other mean, people were making them. that yeah. sense, we were, you know, hugely successful, except we didn't protect ourselves. We were so excited about this dream of getting back, uh, you know, this third child that we had created and birthed. And we were so excited and so focused on that, that we didn't focus on ourselves and maybe what we needed to have, like mm-hmm. a contract, mm-hmm. <laughs> very simple stuff. Yeah, um, equity. Yeah, equity, all those contract, uh, lawyer. <laughs> yeah, you just wanted it. We just yeah. wanted yeah. it. We just wanted it. And so it was May when we were able to buy back the IP of Ample Hills and the three retail shops and then find a place really, really quickly to make ice cream for all of those shops. So now we had five places that we had to make ice cream for. Brian had to figure out how to make ice cream. Because we'd been making ice cream at the social, but it was not big enough to make ice cream now for the Ample Hills as well. That's right. And so the investors wanted us to open up these shops very quickly because it's May and it's ice cream and it's New York. Mm -hmm. So that just put us in a very compromised spot because we've we've seen how important, you know, setting up success is, setting up for success and knowing how difficult it can be if you don't do that. Mm -hmm. So the, the shops basically had to sort of roll out in a matter of weeks when we thought they should really be rolled out in a matter of months. So this is really frustrating because it's like you knew that this was not a good idea. That's right. Yes, but we didn't have the the control, the power, the the resources. So we we sort of, uh, instead of just saying no or stopping, I'm not really sure what would have happened then. But in any event, uh, we, we didn't have that power. Yeah, and what happened was, was that we were doing all this frenetic opening of all of these shops at once so that we could open for the, you know, summer season. And yet we didn't have a contract. So we hadn't solidified the conversation with the investors that we had had about our equity stake and our salaries and everything else, right? Because we had to keep going and opening up all these shops. So you just, to be clear, you didn't have like an employment contract? Correct. No employment contract. We'd had an original operating agreement for the social, uh, not an employment contract. That had all been structured as a, um, the investment had been structured as a a loan to the business, uh, not in traditional VC way in which money would flow in and then the investor would get their money back on the sale of a business. They would have ownership, but then we would have some ownership as well. We had 29% of uh, the social LLC that was there, but the loan itself had to be repaid, not by us personally, but by the business itself, going back to the investor along with their their equity. Now, 
in order to get rid of us, they had to have what's called cause, you know, and that is in the uh, operating agreement. And I know this is getting into the <laughs> the weeds, but, um, you know, that operating agreement uh, cause was, you know, very narrowly defined. We had to like steal money or sexual harassment, you know, crimes. But when we had to go back for more money uh, with the pandemic, uh, there was another promissory note to add more money. And we didn't read that. And they had changed the definition of cause to be not paying back the loan on their schedule. And so that's how they legally were able to remove us. They also told us, don't pay us back because we we don't want to just loan you more money for you to turn around and give it back to us. We want you to wait till the business is successful and is profitable and then you'll pay us back. So we'll figure it out. But I don't have that in writing. That's just the legal way that they were able to sort of lay the groundwork. And, and again, our failure, it was trusting them and not like getting a lawyer to look at it. Yeah. It's interesting from the first time around to the second time around, it's like the failure feels more pure the first yes. time around than, <laughs> than this, this one. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs can kind of identify with this, both, both experiences, mm-hmm. because sometimes there are exogenous things that happen and you're just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and poof, it failed. Yeah. Or sometimes you make mistakes. And it and you fail and you've actually been able to, you know, not good for you, but you've been able to experience both sides of this. Yeah. Some people really, really just have to know that, uh, you know, what Jackie's saying, too, is just like protect yourself. You know, we thought, oh, we don't have a lot of money. We went through the personal bankruptcy. We don't have to hire a lawyer. Lawyers cost thousands of dollars. We can't afford to hire a lawyer. You cannot afford to not hire Mm. a lawyer. I mean, as, as much as. Nobody wants to pay lawyers to like read and write contracts. My God. I mean, it's just, it feels like money that's just flitting out the door at that time, right? Because everybody's happy. Everybody's uh, trusting each other because you're in business together. Mm -hmm. That's when you have to do it because after the fact, it just doesn't matter. And so like, that's my one piece of advice. Anybody listening? Yeah. Do not trust you know, verify. Right. And also just choose people that share your vision, your goals, your your business strategy. You know, I'm not quite sure we, you know, ended up with the right partners. Did you have the opportunity to have those conversations? We just interviewed Jennifer Garner at um, Inc. 5000, and she spent a lot of time with John Foraker, her business partner on her food brand before they really, I think that she said they spent like six hours talking before they yeah. made an agreement that they could work together. Was there even that time? No, the, you know, there wasn't. Um, and, and not for anybody's fault, except it, well, I guess it was, <laughs> that was probably something that we should have uh, Yeah, I think we done. just, uh, I, well, you, you, we were right. You had, you had taken this business pivot class, right? Yeah, that was Jackie took the business oh, pivot okay. class. Yeah. yeah, and she's the one who got us, you know, for good and bad, got us to yeah, the, the meeting. You know, after the bankruptcy, I was pouring over all sorts of different business books and scrolling through Instagram. And I found an online business pivot class. Uh, and then uh, one of the people, Diana, uh, a life business coach, um, she introduced us to the investors and said, you know, you might get something out of this um, just in terms of, you know, learning about what to do next. Mm -hmm. And this person also went through a bankruptcy. And so that felt right. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, fellow bankruptcy person who's (laughs) now a a millionaire here. So that's cool. And uh, yeah, I think that's what I think it's important to note that it always feels good. I mean, nobody goes into something going, oh, these people are wrong. These are the the wrong partners. Let's go ahead and do this and then also not sign contracts. No. I mean, we felt warm and fuzzy about them. But the due diligence that you're talking about that that, that Jennifer Garner did is really, really important. It's like, you know, doing the same interview process, going through the same interview process you would you know, any time that you're bringing somebody into your company or, you know, combining. It's um, like dating before getting married. Dating be- <laughs> that's know, exactly want, what it is. You know, but we, no, we didn't do that. Part of we it didn't was, have the liberty of time. We didn't. We had, you know, two kids and gone through personal bankruptcy. and Yeah, we were facing eviction at the time. Like, yeah. it wasn't... It's easy to make these uh, decisions in retrospect, you know, uh, the idea that you should do this, that, and the other thing as rules. But when, you know, you just need money and somebody's standing there saying, uh, you know, here's money to start a new business. Like, you know, you take the opportunities that are there for you. Right. And as you said before, it felt right. 
Yeah. yeah. At the time, it mm. absolutely felt right. Totally. And building on the point about lawyers, I mean, I've seen this a lot in the entertainment industry. There's a fear almost of hiring a lawyer mm-hmm. that like, will the deal go away? Will your mm-hmm. will your heart be kind of swept away from you if That's you right. bring in a lawyer? Yeah. And I think in that was kind of there for us, that feeling of, no, I think that this particular investor would have seen it as a, a, a threat. As a Had threat, yeah. Lawyered up before getting to that point, they they would have felt very personally affronted. I think that's absolutely a valid concern. But at the end of the day, it, I guess if that is a valid concern, then it probably means that the thing itself is not worth doing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. It's 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 hard. It's a, obviously it comes down to the individual and the individual experience. But that's a hard thing too. I mean, I feel like I've done things without lawyers and yeah. would have had a better experience if I had a lawyer. When you mentioned that, I had PTSD from dealing with a contractor. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. But then you also have been able to do things that are fantastic and wonderful and yeah. gratifying right. yeah. until they're not. But right. yeah. I mean, you know, like you said before, I mean, we did create this incredible space. I mean, for a second time, like we proved to ourselves that we, you know, can create an incredible ice cream shop with incredible ice cream and donuts. We had one billionaire, female billionaire here in the offices and she, her father was a entrepreneur who had multiple startups. And after she watched that, she didn't want to go into business. She wanted to become a dentist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, she was a billionaire, not based on her. She was a billionaire. No, she became, she became. She eventually a, became a billionaire, oh. but she's like, I don't want to go into business. I seen my father go through this. I'm becoming a dentist, and the oh. family had to like talk her out of it. Oh. Are you at that moment where you're ready to oh, be a that's dentist? So interesting. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I did want to ask you about your risk tolerance, and you know, as you're starting this thing for the first time, you probably have a different risk tolerance. Yeah. And how do you? Uh, how has that changed? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's funny because I have a close friend, and he always says to me, like, I just like. <laughs> I, I'm, he's like always amazed at like our ability to just like throw caution to the wind as he sees it and like jump into business. I mean, when we opened the first Ample Hills, we put our our whole life's uh, savings, which was two hundred and twenty thousand dollars at the time, into opening that first shop, and it didn't seem like a big decision. It didn't. It didn't seem like a big risk. It really Sorry. didn't. It's, it just it sounds like so much money. Yeah. Yeah. It just. I know. I don't know if I'm less risk averse. I just don't. I don't have the money. To, to go and, and take the risk right now. Yeah. But it's just, it's a different um, personality. Not everybody, I don't know that it's worked for me or until it hasn't, but it's not, I'm not saying one's better than the other. People are perfectly happy not being risk averse and, and uh, you know, leading lives that aren't entrepreneurs. But definitely if you're an entrepreneur, you have to kind of embrace that. Yeah, I mean, you, you face criticism saying that like, I could do it again. People are like, why? Why would they do it again or a third time? And I questioned that over the last couple of weeks. Um, but I'm not sure yet. I, yeah. I don't. I There's don't. definitely that sense of like, oh, it would be nice to go to work at nine in the morning yeah. and go home at five and <laughs> and leave the job behind at five oh one and not you know that it it absolutely is is part of the thought process after a second failure and you know knowing where the next rent paycheck's going to come from it, it's definitely there but also there is that that spirit of just wanting to make something new wanting to create something new so those are sort of at war right now yeah they're at, they're definitely at war and i i almost feel like still i haven't finished like <laughs> you know now there are new lessons that like you know i need to take from this experience and apply them to the next experience now that doesn't necessarily mean that it's another entrepreneurial experience it could simply be just another another position or another life life change or another career who knows i don't i don't think i would want to be a dentist though so <laughs> yeah i'm not saying do your kids look at it like this billionaire and say like wow my parents have gone through so much i want to be a dentist or <laughs> well our, our daughter is, is gotten into a business honors program in college, or she hasn't started yet, but she's yeah, on her way. Yeah, yeah no, she's very much, she's an artist, but she's an had artist. her own business online, selling her art, and she's very entrepreneurial. You yeah. know, her son is a little younger, so hasn't quite figured out yet what, what that thing is for him yet, but um, she's very um, into that 
I think has that entrepreneurial spirit. That's a good segue. This whole story of yours has become a case study at Harvard Business School. So students are learning about your story. What do you hope that they take away from it? I mean, I think that perseverance and resilience, I mean, it's not dissimilar to, you know, we did sit down about a week ago and told our 17-year-old and 14-year-old that we'd lost our jobs and that we, you know, Christmas would be a little different this year and that, you know, we're losing this thing that they had grown up in and, and built for a second time. But it's interesting because neither of them were looked or have acted devastated or terrified. I mean, her daughter just turned and said, well, I'm sure you're going to be fine. You're, you're going to, you'll figure something out. You'll, you'll always do. Like just a sense of innate confidence and optimism. And so I, I think that why she must feel that way is because she has seen through the pandemic and through all the ups and downs, uh, a sense of resiliency and perseverance and sort of that quiet confidence, even in the face of, of all that. And so I think that that uh, is probably the thing, um, the willingness to be introspective. An unexamined life is not worth living, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just if you're just diving headstrong into the next thing without being willing to examine that, then you will just keep repeating the same mistakes. And we did not, I can proudly say, repeat the same <laughs> mistakes. We just made some new ones. We just made new <laughs> mistakes, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the ability to reflect to ask people too, like, well, what was I good at? You know, what did you like about me? What, you know, felt right? You know, what about this shop did you love? What about this flavor did you love? You know, just all of those things, just reflecting on the good, the bad, the, you know, all the learnings and the resilience because you have to go on, right? We, we have kids, we have a family, we have to figure out next steps. We just have to keep it on. You're here. We're here, <laughs> we're here. That's all for today's episode of Inc. Uncensored. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. Also, if you liked this episode or have suggestions of what topics you'd like to hear about, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or reach out to us on Inc.'s social channels on LinkedIn, Instagram, and the app formerly known as Twitter. Inc. Uncensored is produced by Julia Shu, Blake Odom, and Avery Miles. Mix and sound design by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Josh Christensen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>